We are going to be in the Gospel of Mark. And so if you have your, your Bibles with you, I invite you to open up to the Gospel of Mark. And as you are opening up to that, uh, that Gospel, just want to take a, a moment and say that even though we're celebrating here about the fact that in a week we're going to be together, it's, it's hard to ignore the fact that our world has changed dramatically in the last two or three months, obviously with the COVID crisis and then with the, uh, with the riots and, and, and the uh, various race things that we have been facing. And as I have been pondering over this and seeing everybody uh, putting out their statement and, and what they feel about this, one thing that came to my mind is, uh, you know, education is great and, and, you know, we should fight for injustice and we should stand up for inequity. But the one thing that is actually going to make the true change in this world is the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are people that are inherently flawed in who we are as a character. And simply changing the society the way it is will eventually not uh, bring about the change that needs to happen. The only way that things can truly change is by Jesus Christ and knowing the gospel. And so our prayer is that we would be people of the gospel and that we would be uh, loving our neighbors as ourselves and that we would be reaching out to others so that they would see the glory and the goodness of Jesus Christ as well. So before we get started, would you uh, join with me in prayers? We pray for our state, our, our world, and our country, and also our church. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, um, it, is, it is bittersweet to, uh, to meet here uh, this morning in this, uh, uh, for the most part, empty auditorium here, God. Lord, we want to be with our brothers and sisters in Christ, and we thank you that you have uh, provided the means for us to be able to do that starting next week. Father, I pray that we would prepare well. Father, I pray for those who are, uh, who are uh, deciding to join us, God, that you would uh, uh, keep them healthy and keep them safe. Lord, I pray for those who uh, might not be healthy and that might not be able to join us, that they would still see and feel the, the beauty of Christian fellowship, even uh, whether it be over the internet. And so, God, I ask that you uh, would be ministering to our church and how we go about this wisely, and that also we would be a beacon of hope for the community as we recover from this. And Father, we pray for our, our state and our, our country as it's been torn apart, not only by a virus, but also uh, just racial disparities and all these other things. Father, I pray that we would not uh, be people who are, who are judging by color of skin, but content of character. And also, uh, Lord, through the eyes of Christ, as you have made everyone in your image, and may we be people who love and treat others in that. And will we take on the ideas of, of justice that you, have, uh, that you have told us to in your word. And Father, we ask now that um, as we uh, go into your word this morning and see the beauty of Jesus and see him as better than anything else, Father, would we put him first in our hearts? Would we put him first in, in our church? Would we put him first in our community, in our state, in our country, in our world, so that the gospel of Jesus Christ would go forth uh, throughout the entire world as the water covers the sea, Lord? And it's in Jesus' name that I ask this. Amen. So I doubt that there's a day uh, that you and I are not hit with some sort of advertisement for a product that claims to be better than a similar product. Uh, you can buy a brand new computer. You can buy a brand new phone. 
this afternoon. You can go to the Verizon store and pick it up. And I guarantee you that within three to four months, someone is going to come out, uh, whether it be Apple or Google or maybe one of the tech uh, websites, and will say, hey, your, your phone is now out of date. There's something that's bigger. There's something that's better. There's something that can get you the sorts of technology that you, that you want. When I was in college, and, and even in my, in my master's degree, I tried to get by on the cheap by purchasing as many used textbooks as I possibly could. But when you were in college, or, or whether you're in your master's or doing any kind of study where there's a class involved, you have to be careful because the assigned textbook might have the same title, it might have the same author, but it's not the book that you need for the class. You have the second edition. Rather, the professor is asking for the third edition. The third edition is greater because there are more footnotes that you're probably not going to read, and there are other things that, uh, that will, you'll never need for the purposes of your particular class. Now, I'm not sure why Facebook keeps sending me this advertisement uh, from this company that's trying to tell me that the oven that I have in my kitchen is not good enough because they have a greater option. That if I buy their food samples or packages from them and I just scan it into their oven, it will take care of everything. I don't need to worry about ingredients. I don't need to worry about cutting or, or pre-cooking or doing anything. All I need is to scan a little ticket and shove it into this adult easy-bake oven that uh, uh, might be appealing to someone like me who has almost burned down the house before trying to cook things. But it is this tendency to always be inundated with the biggest, the best, the newest, and the most advanced thing. But isn't it true that uh, just like our cell phones and our computers and, and our uh, textbooks and uh, the, the adult easy-bake ovens, whatever they are, uh, whatever it is that has captured our attention, it will soon be outdated. And when it's outdated, it will leave us searching for more, something better, something greater. And the pattern continues to go on and on and on. Well, folks, one of the issues that we face is that we do this same exact thing with our spiritual lives. We look for self-help ways in which we can relieve stress or guilt or shame or, or anxiety or, or for something that's beyond us in order to fulfill us with purpose and, and, and meaning. And more often than not, we are left wanting. What if there was something that promised to be greater than anything you have ever searched for before and promises that it will never leave you searching again. Would that be interesting to you? Well, uh, something that is so captivating that you never feel empty? The Gospel of Mark here, Mark displays for us not something but someone who indeed promises all of these things and also makes good on all of those promises. 
In the ninth chapter of Mark, Jesus takes three of his closest friends up to the top of a mountain to prove to them that he is greater than anything that they have ever known or experienced. And in this passage, Mark wants you and he wants me to see Jesus as greater than anything that we have ever known as well. So let's dig into the chapter here. Let's look at Mark chapter 9, starting in verse 2. Six days after Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, and led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses. They were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. And so they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written that the Son of Man should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would take these words that I've prepared and that you would pierce our hearts, Lord, to see Jesus as greater than all things. And it's in his name that I ask this. Amen. Well, if there's anything that Mark wants to point to us this morning, it is firstly that we must discover that Jesus is better. Discover that Jesus is better. Notice that out of the 12 disciples, the 12 people that were the closest to Jesus, he only takes three of them with him. Now, seemingly, this is uh, because uh, these are the three that he poured himself out most into, uh, uh, poured himself into the most. And when they get to the top of the mountain, something very peculiar happens. Look with me in verse 2. It says that he was transfigured before them. Now, the the prefix trans literally means to go across something. It means to go beyond something. And so when Mark here says that Jesus was transfigured, it is saying that Jesus, he, he changes the way that he looks. He is dazzlingly white. The word that, uh, that Mark uses here in the Greek is the word that we get metamorphosis from. And if you remember all the way back in 
in high school or maybe even college, you think about biology and the thing that we most think about when we think about metamorphosis is the process by which a caterpillar uh, goes into a cocoon and, and, and emerges as a, as a butterfly. And so here on this mountain, Jesus goes from this seemingly normal-looking Middle Eastern man into the glorious Lord that he is in all of his splendor. Verse 3 tells us that his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. So try as hard as the company might, but Clorox could never get Jesus's robes as white as he made them here. And Jesus's robes were so brilliantly white that it would have been hard for Peter, James, and John to even gaze at Jesus. Now, when we read this story, it ought to take our minds back to when Moses was on the mountain, uh, Mount Sinai, and he begged God, God, show me your glory. You remember what God said to him? God said to Moses that his glory was so beyond what Moses could handle that Moses would die if he saw the Lord in all of his glory. So what does God do? He tells Moses to go and hide himself in a cleft of a rock, and he's going to see God pass by, although he's not going to see God's face because it would literally kill him, but rather he's going to see his hand block him and only going to see his backside. The rest was too much for Moses to handle. And now here, Jesus is giving James and John and Peter a gift that no other human being in history has ever been able to see. They are seeing the radiance of the glory of God right before them. And as it seems then, uh, perfect that as Jesus is essentially pointing back to this uh, Exodus 32 episode, who shows up? But Moses. And he brings Elijah there with him. Verse 4 says, And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. So there's a lot of debate when you read the commentaries here about uh, why was it Moses and why was it e Elijah uh, that show up and not some other powerful uh, Old Testament figures? Why does Isaiah not show up? Why does David not show up? Um, and I, I think it really boils down to two main things. The first is that Elijah and Moses were both servants of God who had mountaintop experiences with God, and they were also then subject to suffering for their obedience to God. This would make sense since uh, Jesus now has his eyes set on Jerusalem and his ultimate demise on the cross. Second, Moses and Elijah essentially are representing the law and the prophets. Moses was the writer of the Pentateuch, which is a word you don't need to remember, but the Pentateuch uh, is the first five books of the Bible, which we consider the law. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. 
And one could argue that Elijah was one of the more powerful prophets in the Old Testament, uh, specifically in the instance on Mount Carmel when he goes against the prophets of Baal and God ends up uh, uh, bringing down fire onto the altar and Elijah has the, the prophets of Baal slaughtered. Uh, because of their idolatry. And now Jesus here, he has a coming suffering, he has a coming death, and their work now uh, in the past is being upstaged by what Jesus is going to go through, the greater work that he is going to accomplish. And Peter? Well, in true Peter style, he doesn't know what to make of any of this. Here is the man that literally just confessed that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And he is also the one who quite recently was just told by Jesus to stand down because he had the spirit of Satan in him for not believing that Jesus' mission will end up in suffering and death. So there's only one thing that Peter can think of saying. Teacher, you can almost hear him babbling. It's good that this is happening here. Well, let's make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. I don't know what he was thinking was going to happen here, but he's absolutely stupefied. And for whatever reason and for whatever he meant, Mark's um, gospel here makes it clear that Peter's suggestion is quite embarrassing. Verse 6. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And if you and I were on that mountaintop, and Jesus all of a sudden almost became radioactive looking, and Moses and Elijah showed up, I think I would probably be a little bit terrified too. And so many of us are like Peter. We don't know what to make of Jesus. But don't miss what Mark is clearly telling us here, that Jesus is greater than Moses, that Jesus is greater than Elijah, two of the most important figures in all of history. But because they are pointing uh, him toward his journey on the cross, Mark is telling us that Jesus is greater than death, and that he's greater than life itself. And notice that Jesus is his mission is he's laser focused on what is going to happen here, and he gives us hope that if he is greater than life, and if he is greater than death, then in him we have something to live for. That in him we have purpose and meaning. And in him we need not fear death because he has conquered it. So why not give your life completely over to Jesus? Because he is greater than all of these things. Second, I think that Mark is telling us to listen to Jesus. Listen to Jesus. After we see Jesus as greater and we turn in, uh, when we trust in him for our lives and essentially our eternity, we must grow in our faith. 
it's not enough just to be planted in the ground. We need to be watered, and we need to be fertilized, and, and grown up into something better. And here on that mountaintop, God tells us how to do that in verse 7. It says, And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved Son. Listen to Him. Now, our initial reaction, I think quite naturally, is to hearken this back to Jesus' baptism, because it sounds an awful lot like that. The clouds are breaking. Uh, there's no spirit coming down like a dove, but obviously God the Father is speaking here. However, I don't think that's what is happening here. Rather, I think it's going back to Moses' time once again, when God traveled with the Israelites on the journey that they were going, if you remember, they were led by a cloud during the day and a pillar of fire at night. And when Moses or Aaron were going to go and meet with God, whether it be on a mountain or whether it be in the tent, what happened? A thick cloud came and descended on them, and they were in the mountain with uh, in the cloud with God. God specifically met with Moses in a thick cloud, and that cloud represented God's glory and God's presence. And here we see that cloud overshadowing them as God the Father speaks out. And furthermore, when Moses was preparing the Israelites for the time that he would not be around anymore, he told them in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15, he said to them, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him that you should what? Listen. It is to him that you shall listen. So God the Father here is telling Peter, James, and John, and us by extension, that this is the one. This Jesus is the one that the world has waited for. Because he is God in the flesh, we need to trust in him. And not only just trust, but also obey him. This is why you and I, we can't add anything else to the Bible. Jesus has definitively spoken uh, in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 2. This is what the author writes. Long ago, in many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our, our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son whom he has appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. And Jesus speaks to us through his word. It's closed. And then we hear from him in the word now. Jesus told us in John chapter 14, verse 15, If you love me, keep my commandments. He's not saying, keep my commandments so that I love you. That's not what he's saying. We are accepted. We are uh, taken into his arms. We are received by him in spite of us, not based on what we do. But if we love him for his redeeming work in us, our natural response then should be to keep his commandments. If we know him, trust him, love him, uh, love him we must joyfully 
obey him. So the question is, how much of your walk with Christ is dedicated to listening to him? Now, understand that listening and hearing are two different things. Hearing is just taking in sound waves into your ears and, and processing through uh, whatever process your brain does uh, by taking in, in sound waves. Listening is hearing with action. For many of us, our walk with Christ is like a child who was asked by their parents to go clean up their room. And when the parent goes into the room, they walk in there and they see the children talking, but the room is still a mess. And you say, what are you doing? I told you to go and clean your room. And they said, yes, you did say that. I studied your words. We, we broke down the nuances of your language and we decided that it was a good word, but we're not actually going to clean our rooms. They heard it, but they never actually did anything about it. As ridiculous as that sounds, many of us are living the Christian life in the exact same way. We must not just hear Jesus. We must listen to him. And finally, Mark tells us here that we ought to see the significance of Jesus' person and his work. This episode ends when they come down from the mountain. And Jesus tells these, these three disciples, listen, I don't want you to breathe a word about any of the things that you just saw until I am raised from the dead. And why he told them not to say anything, that's another conversation for another time. But what I want us to focus on here is verse 10. When it says, so they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. Now, when I was studying this text this week, I was, I was thinking to myself, well, I mean, duh, of course they would wonder what this means. What in the world is he talking about? I would have questioned that same exact thing here too. Why? Because no one throughout history has ever done what Jesus is claiming is going to happen to him. I've done a number of funerals, folks, and I have yet to do a funeral in which the deceased climbs up out of their casket or their grave and is better than they were before. They are so confused here that they, uh, they straight up change the subject. Verse 11, they ask him, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come? And Jesus, being the, the wise and nice teacher that he is, he, he answers their question, but then he, he spins it around and puts it on a, a treatise once again so that they can get it into their heads what is going to happen to him very, very shortly. He relates Elijah to John the Baptist. He isn't talking about reincarnation here, but he's essentially saying that when John the Baptist came, he came in the spirit and the power of Elijah. And because John the Baptist has come and paved the way for him, that prophecy is fulfilled. What was John's ministry? To prepare the way, preach the message, and suffer. 
So then why does Jesus bring this up? He brings it up because his coming, suffering, and death are very, very near. Look at verse 12. And how is it that the Son of Man, that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? So notice what Jesus is doing here. Jesus is bringing up again the notion that what he is going to accomplish is greater that his, his work among them as the sinless Son of God that Peter has just proclaimed him to be is not complete until he suffers at the hands of sinners. But unlike Elijah, Moses, and John the Baptist, Jesus' death is not pointing towards something that is going to happen in the future a future redemption. Rather, it is pointing, and Jesus is pointing to an accomplished redemption in his blood. The significance of Jesus' person and work comes down to what is going to happen to him in a short while on the cross. And that significance is where you and I find our purpose in life. You want to ask what the meaning of life is? It is in Jesus Christ. It is in Christ that you have forgiveness of sin. It is in Christ that you have a resolution to your guilt. It is in Christ that you have relief from shame. It is in Christ that you have hope for tomorrow. It is in Christ that you will find ultimate meaning, ultimate beauty, and ultimate love. Not for who you are, but who Christ is and what he has done for you in his death and in his resurrection. Jesus is greater than anything. And he offers you himself today. So I plead with you to receive him as Lord and Savior. Go to him. Confess your sins and trust in him for redemption. The Holy Spirit may be stirring your heart wherever you are right now. Don't put it off. Become a Christian today by giving your life to Jesus. And if that's you, let me know because I want to help you grow in this early important time in your faith. Jesus is greater. Why not put your faith and hope and trust in something that is greater? Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we, we thank you, Lord, that you have given us a Savior. We thank you that you have, Lord, given us the opportunity to be absolved from our guilt once and for all. Lord, I thank you that you have sent Christ Jesus 
to be greater than anything that we could hope or imagine, Lord. We don't have to go chasing after the next best thing because the greatest thing is right in front of us, reaching his hand out and saying, follow me. And so, Father, would you help us to do that today? Give sight to those who are spiritually blind. Open the ears of those who are spiritually deaf so that they can trust in you and receive true life. And it's in Jesus' name that I ask this.